0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Thanks for standing for the reading of God's Word. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to worship together, good to sing together. Um... It really um, fills my heart to be here with you all. Uh, this passage probably deserves uh, several sermons, if you've read it and you heard Aaron read it. One angle, which I will not say much about this morning, is that this passage actually becomes really personal. Because of the reason Paul is in Athens and what he's observing, which is our idols everywhere, we can quickly diagnose our own heart and be like, okay. I hear what he's saying. I got some idols to contend with as well. Um, However, in keeping with the general flow of the book of Acts, this message is going to take on that same evangelistic flavor that we've been seeing all throughout this particular book. The goal, once again, is to help you interact and engage with others to tell them about what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, You can't read, and you know this already, you can't read any part of Acts. Start in chapter 1, go to chapter 28, and get away from that thrust. It's there, and it continues this morning. So I'm going to briefly pray, and then um, we'll dive right into this particular text. Father, I'm in desperate need for your help this morning, knowing that you have spoken and continue to speak through your word and that you are calling us by the power of the spirit to receive what you have said and to be changed we need that and so we trust and know that you are here at work in this church so may this particular passage impact our lives impact our heart And move us into a direction where we see our culture clearly, but also we see people who live in this culture who desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the bold statement for the day. We have an idolatry problem. Americans have... An idolatry problem. Uh, to, be, to be honest, 21st century America looks a lot like 1st century Athens. In the ancient Greek city of Athens, again, it's where Paul's at in this passage, uh, there was plenty of religion and mythology. In Athens, you had the, like the 12 Olympians as the major deities of the Greek pantheon, uh, my kids learn a lot about that, right? Because they, they, they um, study that kind of stuff. So they know about uh, Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Ares. My, my kids are going to correct me on some of the pronunciation here. Aphrodite, Hermes, uh, and either Hestia or Dionysus. Depending on who you ask, those two get debated. Are they part of the 12? What are we doing? Whatever I don't know. Right? In America, we have our own version of the Greek pantheon. We have athletes who are worshiped. Like, just consider probably one of the most famous athletes in the world right now, which is LeBron James, right? Like, when that guy opens his mouth, it's like, ah, I believe what he said. <laughs> you mean everyone worships him while he plays basketball. I mean, just think about Hollywood. You know, when celebrities speak, it's like, oh, what they said is gospel. Uh, think about politicians, right? We have politicians who act like demigods. You just think about um, professional sports teams for, for a moment, right? Um, a couple years ago, I went to a Minnesota Vikings game. Big Minnesota Vikings fan, grew up that way. So my twin brother bought some tickets, and he just you know, said, here's, here's a ticket for you. I'm going to drive up to the game. And you know, my parents were there, and my brother was in town, and it was a blast. I loved it. But if you've ever been to a professional or a collegiate game, I know you've probably seen what I'm about to describe. Before the game, thousands of people wait outside. And you know, here they're dressed in the Minnesota garb. They got the purple and gold. I got my Viking t-shirt on, but I even felt a little underdressed compared to what everyone else is wearing. They got the face paint. You got some people who think it's Halloween. They just they're going all out. Some wait for hours to enter into the temple-like structure that we call a stadium. When everyone gathers into the temple, the team is worshipped. And here's what's crazy to me, and this is just more of a personal point. The Vikings perpetually disappoint their fan base. (laughs) Yep. And yet, we worship them all the more. (laughs) Here's another example of idol worship. We are officially in the throes of the presidential election season. We're there. And what do we see? Politicians and political parties being worshipped. How do I know a politician or a political party is being worshipped? The politician or political party can do no wrong in the eyes of some people even when a lie is so obvious and i'm talking about both sides of the aisle here you know even when a lie is so obvious people either just don't believe the lie they ignore the lie or or even defend the lie that came out of the mouth of the politician it's crazy why in their own way they're worshiping that individual Here's, here is the sobering truth. You become what you worship. If you go into the home of of a sports fanatic, you'll find a room dedicated to their favorite team, you know, they're gonna put the logo on the side of their vehicle. When a person blindly follows a politician, you know, they give up everything, even their own principles to follow that individual. And we should not be shocked that we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly what I call post-Christian. At a dizzying pace, worship of the one true God has shifted. Worship is turning to the inward self, right? People are turning to false gods perpetuated by other religious structures, worship is is made to ideological systems sometimes people tend to worship their own desires i really feel deeply about this i have this desire and that desire becomes the very thing that they worship you know so as we look at the landscape of american culture we should not be shocked that there is an idolatry problem there seems to be universal agreement that america like I said, is becoming increasingly post-Christian. Uh, I believe we're already there in part because people are explicitly stating I, I'm not a Christian or you know, people say, might say they're a Christian but they do the, the Easter and Christmas thing but that's kind of it. They were born into a religious family, whatever, and that's it. But we all know growing up in a Christian home does not make a person Christian nor does attending the obligatory Christmas and Easter service, Right? Listen to these stats from Pew Research Study from 2018-2019. Here's how generations have religiously identified themselves since 1928. And Ryan Anderson might be proud because he loves to analyze data. (laughs) So here we go. The silent generation born 1928 to 1945, 84% of that generation accounted themselves and said that they were Christian. Next generation, the baby boomers. It's my parents' generation. 46 to 64. Goes down to 76%. Generation X, so 65 to 1980. 67%. Millennials, I barely made that generation. 1981 to 96. I've been trying to get out of that generation for a while, but everyone keeps putting me back in. Only 49% of millennials say or identify themselves as a Christian. You, You see... The trend, like, I'm not an analyst, but even I can understand what's going on here. Now, there's a lot behind data points. But one study after another, whether it's Pew Research or, or Barna, seems to affirm the decline of Christianity in America. But we really don't even need the data points to see that we are living in a post-Christian culture, do we? We don't even need that let me ask you this question what is the religious makeup or the spiritual makeup however you want to define that of your neighborhood what about your workplace but here's the deal there are two ways to respond to the rapid decline of christianity in america and the rapid increase of idolatry in america we can lament what's going on, or we can look for the opportunities that are right in front of us. I want us to choose the latter option. God has us, and in particular this church, has us living in a location among a culture during a particular time period for the express purpose of glorifying Him through the persistent pursuit of telling other people about our great God. you here right now is not an accident. Question is, what are you doing? Paul's time in Athens, I think, to some degree, is a model for how 21st century American uh, gospel-centered churches can engage a non-Christian culture. I think it can be argued that of all the places that Paul visited in the book of Acts, and he visited a lot of cities and towns that were very distinct, Athens might, be the, might have the closest like, religious vibe to the United States. While the, U, the U.S. does not have the Greek pantheon, this country is actually still very spiritual, very spiritual. Despite the stats that I shared about the decline of Christianity in America, there are other surveys done that are showing that spirituality is actually on the rise in America. And as I've already said, everyone is worshiping something or someone. Paul's time in Athens, Athens urges you to consider how you view How are you to view the world around you while trying to understand how others view the world around them, right? You can do both at the same time. How do you understand what's going on in the culture, and how can you understand how another person views what's going on around them in the culture? Uh, Some people call this like worldview analysis. In order to speak the truth of the gospel into an idolatrous culture, you have to understand to some degree how people view the world. Paul certainly knew about the reputation of Athens. It was the intellectual capital of the world at the time. If you were from Athens, that was was like putting a badge on your shirt and saying, I'm from there. All the smart people go there. It's like 19th century Oxford. Oxford Oxford in the 19th century was was the intellectual capital of the world. That's what we have here in Athens. Athens. It is from the city of Athens where Aristotle, Plato, Epicurus, and Socrates debated philosophy. But knowing the reputation, at least for Paul, and being confronted with Athenian reality are actually totally different. When Paul walks into Athens, he is immediately confronted with the structural and architectural greatness of Athens. But what he saw does not compare to the burden he felt For the people. When it says in verse 16, the city is full of idols, that's what your ESV translation, if you're using that, says it was full of idols, the the original language actually literally means the city was under the idols. So Paul, at the very least, is burdened because there is a power and control that the idols have over the city. And the spiritual climate of Athens is keeping many people in bondage. If, if he, Paul, is going to address the idolatry in Athens, he needs to understand who or what they are worshiping. And I what I love about this passage is that we see another perspective, another another way of thinking about how to engage people with the truth of God. So here, here are three tips from Paul's time in Athens that I think we can apply as we think about engaging frankly, our idolatrous post-Christian culture. Three tips. We want to appropriately pay attention. Like are you paying attention to what you what, what's going on around you, right? Second thing, find common ground. That's what Paul did here. We'll look at that. And then third, we want to provide answers or an alternative. If you're going to say, no, don't worship idols. you got what's, what do we do then? Is it just that or is there an alternative? That's what Paul does here. So I modify the idea that we need to pay attention with appropriately because not everything that the culture dishes out in front of our eyes we need to receive, right? Not everything. But there is a place to pay attention to what's going on. It says in verse 16, the reason Paul was provoked when he arrived at Athens is because he was actually just paying attention. He saw the idols of Athens everywhere with his eyes. Everything he heard about Athens was true, and the reality actually slapped him in the face. I heard about this place called Athens, and when you get there, it's like, whoa. That's crazy. You know, after Paul preaches in the synagogue in Athens, he goes to the marketplace. I was thinking about this earlier. It's like right now. The marketplace is is the place where just people are just kind of hanging out. We're in the middle of a park. It's like... We're preaching the gospel to people. Can you listen over there playing frisbee golf? (laughs) I want to tell you about Jesus. Down there by the creek, can you hear me? Because I want to tell you about Jesus. That's what Paul was doing. He went to the synagogue. He was kind of at the church. And then he goes into the marketplace. And at the marketplace is a myriad of people from all kinds of social and economic statuses. And they were there just listening. In in particular, we read Paul engages... uh, what we know as Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. If you've ever taken a philosophy class, you would run into those ways of thinking. Uh, Paul was not naive to their worldview. He knew that if he was going to tell them about the gospel, it is going to take him finding some common ground. Now, I'll speak to that in a moment. But he had to pay attention to who he is speaking to before engaging in a spiritual discussion. We read in our text, eventually Paul is taken to the... Aaron, where are you at? You and I I said this like 15 times. Arabicus, right? Which some people translate as Mars Hill out of the Latin. I'm going to call it Mars Hill because it's much easier. That's verse 22. So Paul is taken there after the marketplace... In an attempt to move into a spiritual discussion with the like, philosophical elite, Paul uses the power of observation. It says in verse 23, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Like that's all Paul needed. That was, that was the door in which he was able to walk through. Some were worshiping an unknown God again, I'll look at the content of his message in a moment, but if Christians are going to engage the culture, we must pay attention to the culture. In particular, we must pay attention to what culture is worshiping. So like, how can we do this? Well, first, we can listen to others. What are other people saying? Listen so you can know how another person sees the world. And I can't believe I'm actually gonna say this because I'm always railing against social media. But social media does provide a window into like, what is trending in culture. What are people worshiping, right? If, if, you run some, if you run to someone's social media feed like on Instagram and it's nothing but selfies, that's a pretty good indicator that they're kind of worshiping themselves. Like they got the selfie stick and they keep using it over and over. Like You know there's another side to that camera or whatever. If you can keep yourself from being swept up by the cultural winds of social media, then you can actually learn a lot about what people are worshiping. So we want to pay attention appropriately. After making a few observations, Paul found common ground. What makes Paul's approach at Mars Hill different from his approach in the synagogue is actually the starting point. In the synagogue, Paul's goal was simple. He wanted to show from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised Messiah. This approach is entirely appropriate. As I said last week, it is still appropriate because there is power in what God has spoken. But make no mistake about it, the difference in approach between the synagogue and Mars Hill is a matter of he's just understanding his context. Who am I speaking to right now? In this situation, the Bible is not common ground for the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, at least not yet, because they do not believe the Bible. Like, I don't believe that book. But because Paul made several observations, he's actually able to find common ground. He's going to look at this a little bit differently. About that un- unknown God they are all worshiping, Paul says in Verse 23 and 24, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. The root of uh, the Greek word for unknown is how we get the English word for agnostic. If you meet a person who says they are agnostic, they're saying that no one can know about the existence or nature of God like beyond the material world. Nevertheless, the common ground Paul found between he and the philosophers is that the world was actually created. Let's start somewhere. Let's talk about creation. Creation. Figuring out who created the world is the point of debate for them, at least at this moment. Paul makes his argument without even opening a Bible. He, didn't, he makes his argument without even saying gospel. He makes his argument without slapping on Christianese language that they would not even understand. Paul steps back and he says, let's begin with the creation of the world. Now, after establishing common ground, we do read the truth of who created the world. The one God who is sovereign over heaven and earth created the world. Paul explains in this passage, God does not live in temples. All these beautiful temples that you have here, God doesn't live in that. Nor does God need to be served by human hands. God does not need anything from man. Actually, the opposite is true. Mankind needs God to even breathe. Between verses 22 and 25, Paul is making an argument counter to the beliefs of these Epicureans and Stoics. He challenged their entire theology on creation. The Stoics were pantheists and the Epicureans were just basically practical atheists. The opening of Paul's speech denied both points. The Epicureans believed God is completely absent and the Stoics believed God is in everything. Everything. Everything you see. Paul is saying, God is not absent, but active. And God is also distinct from what he has created. Paul pointed out more common ground by quoting, not the scriptures, but their philosophers and poets. While making the point that God has revealed himself to everyone at all time, he says in verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Sounds like scripture, right? Well, it's not. It's Epimenides, a Greek uh, philosopher, poet from the 6th to 7th century BC. Next, Paul quotes Eridus, another Greek poet. He says, For we are indeed his offspring. Again, sounds like scripture, but it is not, which is the point. Paul found common ground and built a big biblical argument with what they knew. Paul met them on their terms, and appropriately, we can do the same. About 15 years ago, I was um I was going to play a softball game um, around North Minneapolis. If you're familiar with Minneapolis, 394 and like Penn Avenue. I was in, uh, the game got rained out, so I was just at a cafe kind of studying. I was in school at the time. And I'm sitting there, and I'm reading. I'm working. There's a guy to, to the right of me, and he's reading a book. And he's reading a book that I just got done reading called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And it's one of the books that made a massive impact on my life before I became a Christian, before the Lord saved me. Well, I approached the guy at the table and just, just ask, hey, do you enjoy the book? he said, yeah, it's good. I still have a lot of questions about Christianity. So we exchanged numbers. And then we continued the dialogue. Eventually, the Lord moved in and saved him. And we became best friends. But here's my point. The book was the common ground. That was the basis of our discussion. That was all the common ground that I needed to be able to talk to him about spiritual matters. Whether it's a book, a movie, a leisure activity, your place of employment, a cause, there are plenty of opportunities for Christians to find common ground, to talk about Christ with others. Of course, the goal of engaging a non Christian culture or post Christian culture is to provide lasting answers, right? Making observations but it is good, but it's not enough. Establishing common ground is fine, but it could just be an intellectual exercise. Making observations and establishing common ground does not matter if truth is not in some way communicated. Again, here's how Paul understand the primary problem in Athens. It was full of idols. Idol worship was going on everywhere. Statues of alleged gods were everywhere. Beautiful temples built for their gods. Icons lining the streets. If Paul is going to combat the false worship of idols, it is not enough to take away the idols. After all, the human heart is designed by God to worship. (laughs) If you take away one idol, then it will be replaced with another idol. I heard this from another pastor. He said, our hearts are idol factories. You know, if you take away the Minnesota Vikings from a fanatic, that person will find another team to worship. The person will find another temple to worship a football team. The way to replace the false worship of idols is to get to the core of what or who is being worshiped. Paul needs to replace the idols that the Athenians see and worship with the one true God. That's what he wants to talk about, which is why Paul is trying this is what Paul is trying to do in his speech. First he says in verse 26, "From one man all the nations of mankind exist." He talks about Adam without mentioning Adam. Because God created the world and the first man which all people come from, then we all have the ability to feel it says feel our way to God verse 27. This is Paul's way of saying all people are without excuse to know God and are therefore held accountable to their creator. This would be a wonderful time just to read Romans 1, which we don't have time for. But that's the point Paul makes when he writes the Romans, writes to the Romans in chapter 1. All people are without excuse. That's what he says here. Because all people come from the first man, Adam, there is no reason to think God can be worshipped through any imagined means. Paul's clutch when he says in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art And the imagination of man, like my kids who are my offspring, right? My kids who are my offspring do not need to erect a statue of me in order to honor me. That would be ridiculous. You cannot create God in whatever image you feel like and call it worship. The eternal God transcends any tangible conception you try to understand. Of course, the exception being the Son of God, Jesus Christ. By the way, the idolatry of the Greeks is reminiscent of Israel in the Old Testament. Maybe you remember this story. God had chosen Israel as his people to show the world what right worship looked like, but they messed up. The One example I keep going back to because I'm just astonished by, by the whole scene is is when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. To give Israel the Ten Commandments to to Moses, the leader of Israel, he had to go up Mount Sinai to meet with God. Israel got restless when Moses did not come back down right away. So Israel, what they do, they created a golden calf to worship. Never mind God just led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Never mind the fact that God removed the oppressive hand of Pharaoh off their backs. So because of a desire to worship, coupled with their impatience, they created the golden and calf, and boom, what we got? We got idolatry. Idolatry gets to the heart of man's desire to worship. Paul identified the importance of the human heart to worship, and we need to see it as well. If we have been created to worship, then it is critical to figure out the right path to worship Paul's strategy is knowing where you come from, from the first man. And then he takes takes us to the second man mentioned in verse 31. Through Jesus, God is going to judge the world in righteousness through this second man. So we all come from the first man. He messed it up, got the fall. (laughs) But praise God, there is a second man, Jesus, in which we are able to have life. The Athenians and we can be assured God will judge the world because of the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you can be assured you will be judged. I will be judged for idolatry. That's like the point he's making here. Jesus rose from the dead, and because of that, you will be judged, Athenians. What is the solution then? How can a person stave off judgment? Paul gives one word right here. Repent. Repent. I cannot imagine how Paul made this statement, standing in one of the greatest intellectual facilities of the ancient world. I cannot imagine how Paul was able to tell the greatest philosophers of the world to repent. You know, as uh, Christians who want to tell others about Jesus... I find myself in situations where, you know, I want to be mindful about who I am with, so that helps shape what I say, right? Perhaps you're with family or friends who are, who are not Christian. Perhaps it's with a, a coworker, or a class, classmate that you're talking about, and you want to get to spiritual matters, matters and you're just like, okay, how do, I, how do I talk about this in a way that this person can receive it? But there are times where, as we see here, you get right to the point. You just lay it all out there. You need to get right to the point. When Paul says that the whole lot of them need to repent, he just laid it all on the line. Here's what is being communicated, and this is what our culture needs to hear. And it's an uncomfortable thing to say. I know that, but it's this. Repent. Turn from your idol worship and worship the one true God. Worship the one who created the world and sustains the world. Turn away from Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Eris, Aphrodite, Muhammad, Buddha, Vishnu, Brahman, Shiva, or your personal inner light. All of those are imposters enslaving people. All of these alleged gods are keeping people from the truth and the way to move to right worship the first thing you need to do the first thing we need to say appropriately is got to repent which literally means to turn turn away from that and turn toward Jesus let me try to summarize the problem we all see in Acts 17 thus far but it's also something you might sense in your life. Whenever you give allegiance to something or someone other than Jesus, you are committing idolatry. Whenever you give allegiance to something or someone other than Jesus, you are committing idolatry. Athens, like America, is pumping out idols like left and right. And every old and new idol is created to move your allegiance away from Jesus, to move you to worship someone other than the one true God. I breezed by this verse earlier, but I want to revisit it now. Paul is is described as being provoked in verse 16, because the city was full of idols. The Greek behind the English word for provoked is used in one other instance in the New Testament. However, it occurs multiple times in the Greek Old Testament. And there are multiple examples of seeing what it looks like for God to be provoked to anger because of idol worship. Let's go back to the story of the golden calf for a moment. This is what the Lord said to Moses regarding Israel's idolatry. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I might make a great nation of you. He's talking again to Moses. I think that's what it means when we read that Paul was provoked. We are certainly not God. Paul is not God. But idol worship should provoke us to righteous anger. And we should be provoked into action. Listen, idolatry is empty. Life without a relationship with the living God through faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is slavery for a soul. And we don't want that for our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, whoever. We want them to experience freedom. Freedom from idols is through Jesus. As Christians, it's important we, we be able to diagnose you know, the cultural climate, yes. We need to identify the idols all around us, yes. It is important we protect our hearts from idols, yes. you know, Regarding that point, Paul makes it real clear when he wrote to the church in Corinth, Do not be idolaters as you once were. So we need to live in the freedom purchased for us by Jesus at the cross and then through his resurrection. But we see that the thrust of this passage is that there are people who are still believing the lies. And as statistics have shown us, the number of people is increasing Dramatically. The idols all around us keep people in spiritual slavery and God leaves it to us to tell people living in darkness what it means and what it looks like to worship the one true God. Let's pray.